We are jumping into 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4 today. And so <clears throat> let's do a recap because I love recaps of history and maps and all this other fun stuff. Uh, good morning. Um, <clears throat> where are we at? Here's my timeline. Dude, this is it. 2000 BC. That's a long time ago. The pyramids, the great pyramids of Giza were built in about 2500 BC, give or take, we think. So that would have been way over here. This is a long time ago, folks. This is a long time ago. 2000 BC. 2000 BC is kind of right around the period, around 3000 BC to about 1000 BC is an era of time that we call the Bronze Age. This is a historical term. Um, we tend to break up history or prehistory into ages. Um, and before writing was really a big thing where historical records were written, and that's different depending on different cultures. Archaeologists break up history into periods based on the kinds of things we find because we don't have good historical re records of, you know, um, today we have great historical records. You know all the presidents of the U.S., or you should know. Uh, you know all the kings and queens of England. Um, but it wasn't always like that. And in prehistory, and prehistory means the time before history, that is, before written records were really good and really kept well, scientists break up history into periods based on what you can dig up in the ground. Things, objects, tools, and the kinds of tools that you dig up is really what kind of defines the era of prehistory. So there's, the, the, there's all these different kinds of divisions. The Stone Age is one name, and, and if you say Stone Age, that probably tells you that most of the tools you dig up from that era are probably made of what? Stone. This is easy. See, I, I start with the easy stuff, <coughs> and then we get into the, yeah, that's good. <laughs> there's always a bell curve of ability in the class. So. Uh, so Stone Age, stone tools, um, uh, stone implements, uh, stone weapons. Then we get into a period around 3000 BC where those tools tend to be start being made of metal and the metal that was made was a essentially an alloy of copper and tin. There was other kinds of alloys. You can, you can actually have copper and arsenic, um, copper and, and uh, zinc, but copper and tin tend to be the kind of alloy that was used to make a metal called bronze and bronze is paradoxically a fairly hard metal combined with two very soft metals put together. So copper is a very soft metal. You couldn't really make tools out of it. It would just bend and break. Um, tin is the same way. It's a very flimsy, uh, weak metal. But when you mix those together into an alloy, you make bronze. And bronze is a very hard, it's hard, not very hard, hard metal. But it's good for tools. You can make tools out of it. Um, you can make axes. And you can make knives. And you can make weapons out of it. And you make armor out of it. And so around 3000 BC in the Mediterranean, you start to see tools and, and weapons being made of bronze. That lasts until about 1000 BC, when, depending on where you are in the world, cultures start to realize and figure out how to use iron to make tools and weapons and armor and all these other things. And so in the Levant or Palestine, the region we call Israel today, <clears throat> the uh, they were actually ahead of the game, folks, and they actually started to master this working of iron and, yes, steel, because when you mix iron with, with uh, carbon, you make steel. They start to master this very early um, in history, around 1200 BC, the Philistines of all people seem to have started to master this idea of iron working. Who were the Philistines? Philistines are one of the great enemies of Israel, of, of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. No one's really sure exactly what the origin of the Philistines are. Um, <clears throat> they seem to potentially, and there's a lot of controversy about this, they may have been people from the Aegean region of the Mediterranean. If this is the Mediterranean Sea, and here we have Egypt down here, we have Israel, you'll go up into what we call Turkey today, and then Greece, and then Italy, way over there where the Romans will come from, way up in the Aegean, we think that these people that eventually be called the Philistines start. They, we think that that's where their origin was and they may have even come from um, the island of Crete. And so Crete, which is a, a, a large island in the Aegean, it may have been that the Philistines came from there. They may have been called what's called the Sea Peoples. And so at the end of the Bronze Age, this region, what we're talking about here today, essentially the era of the judges, there's a great collapse of civilizations. And if you were here for our judges 
uh, lectures of last year, or you can go back and look at those videos from the past. We talked about this. This was a really, really key time in the history of civilization because civilization collapsed. And it collapsed for almost all of the major empires of the Mediterranean. <clears throat> we call that the Late Bronze Age Collapse. It may have been partially the result of the activity of a, a, a warlike people called the, the Sea Peoples. Well, we know that those Sea Peoples settled in Palestine, in the region that we call Israel. And they came to be known as Philistines. That's what's going to be important for today because we're going to talk about the Philistines. Palestine, the name Palestine, is essentially a Roman name for this region because of the Philistines who live there. So if you talk about Palestine, it's synonymous with Israel, it's synonymous with Canaan. So where's Damascus in this yep. map? That would be Syria, and that would be up here. Okay. Damascus, one of the oldest cities on Earth, is a city, it might be the oldest city on Earth, it is a city in a region that we call Syria. It was called Syria back then. It was also called Aram. So this is one of the great enemies of Israel, too, was up there. So was there a specific question why you asked that? Or? Oh, I was just thinking along the lines of Damascus steel and the weapons that oh, eventually okay. became out of uh -huh. that era. Okay, very good. It's all, it's all about uh, Forged, Forged in Fire. Yeah. I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> Your homework for the class, folks, is to build a forge, come back with an iron tool uh, for next week. Yeah, no, this is great. And so, uh, just to kind of catch us up, so here's our timeline 2000 BC, the era of the patriarchs. Remember, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This is the period in which the Hebrews, which is an ethnic term, Hebrews, settle in Egypt because of a great drought in Palestine and end up living in Egypt for almost or over 400 years. Well, that's about here. So during this whole period, the, what we call the Hebrews, the ethnic term, settle in Egypt. But as we all know from reading our Bible, that goes south. And eventually the administration of Egypt uh, comes into power that doesn't know them. He hates them. They start to enslave them. They treat them very poorly. And so they leave. And under Moses, they leave in what we call the Exodus and settle eventually under Joshua in the promised land. Promised land is this strip of land right here in which 12 tribes of Israel settle <clears throat> after the Exodus and for another 400 years essentially live as a loose confederation of tribes. There's really no centralized government. There's no king. From time to time there are what we call judges or leaders uh, men, or in one case a woman, people who are raised up, usually under military reasons, to lead the people and to defend the, the what now we call the Israelites, which is a religious sociological term, the Israelites, <coughs> against their enemies. For 400 years this goes on. What you are reading here in the book of 1 Samuel is the end of a great era that we call the end of the era of the judges. That, that period of over 400 years in which corruption and infighting, and there's a civil war, folks. I mean, there's some really bad stuff. If you go back to Judges, you'll read that the people of God fall apart. This is a very tough time for them, and people have had enough, and they finally cry out and say, we want to be like our neighbors. We want to have a king, because look how great it is in Egypt, right? They got a king, and they got it all together. They have a centralized bureaucracy. Everything runs through the king. He controls all aspects of society, religious, political, cultural, economic. The Hittites, who are now destroyed, they, you know, maybe this is a bad example, uh, uh, but still there are kings of the era that are around them um, that continue on to say, these are the people who are running the show and things are working really well. We want a king. And God says, I'm your king. You don't need a king. I'm your king. If you just do what I tell you, everything will be fine. Well, we know how that goes, right? And so eventually God relents. And we're going to read about that today. We're going to read about that. And we are the end of the era of the judges. Eli, who we talked about last time, Eli is, is a priest. He's also a judge, as we'll find out today, which would make him the second to last judge of Israel. He doesn't have his stuff together, folks. He personally will talk about this, the idea of, of personal responsibility versus your responsibility of rearing children properly. That's a huge part of, of this chapter, <clears throat> and we'll talk about that. 
Now the era of the judges is coming to an end and God is gonna relent and he's going to give Israel a king. Many kings actually. So let's start. Let's just start with reading 1 Samuel chapter three. And just real quick, last time to recap, some people, some, some faithful people who really were commoners in, in Israel at the time who weren't aristocracy, they weren't wealthy, they weren't like famous. They cry out to God. Um, Hannah, a faithful Israelite woman, cries out to God to give her a son. She is barren. Um, married to Elkanah, uh, another faithful man, we think, of God, for a son. And God decides to bring them a son and, and, they, and, and decides to make or, or anoint a boy who was going to be a great leader of Israel and the last judge of Israel. His name is Samuel. And in the, in the last chapter, um, he is born and he has begun to be raised. And his mom, Hannah, decides to dedicate him his whole life to God. And so after she nurses him and he's finished nursing, which in antiquity was probably around the ages of three to four. It's a lot longer back then than it is now for, for some people. <laughs> for most. Uh, most decides to take him to the temple and say, Eli, I am dedicating my boy Samuel to God. Take care of him. And Eli becomes essentially um, the adopted son of Eli, if you want to call it that. Um, Eli raises him. Um, he is associated with the tabernacle or temple. And, and he is growing and, and in stature and in, and in wisdom. And his parents meet see him once a year. His mom might come and see him once a year. Um, and that's it. And so he is, he is a very special boy that we're going to read about uh, more today. Chapter 3, and let's read verses 1 to 21. Actually, we're going to read 3, 1 to 4, 1. Who can read that for me? I can do that. Thank you, sir. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, who was, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and uh, lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and uh, did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord who was calling a young man, uh, therefore Eli said to Samuel, uh, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, <clears throat> speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went to lay down uh, in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at, at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears uh, of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill, uh, fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house <clears throat> forever uh, for the iniquity that he knew, uh, because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Uh, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for the sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay down until morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God, uh, may God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what he seems good, uh, good to him. And Samuel grew, uh, and the Lord was with him. 
and let none of the, his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again to, at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. For one, uh, and the word of Samuel came to, uh, came to all Israel. Thank you. It's a lot in there. What do you notice about that chapter? Let's. I guess I'll say something. The uh, the Lord chose to spoke chose to speak to Samuel, kind of an understudy of Eli the high priest, mm -hmm. which kind of seems that you, know, you can make the case with God. There's the hierarchy isn't based on social status, but on faith and a willingness to listen to God. I love that. And so Samuel, of course, received the message from God and not Eli. And what and, and to take that a little further, what do you notice about Eli's reaction? Is he is he so tuned in to what God wants that immediately recognizes this is probably God talking to Samuel? Of course not. Yeah. He's yeah. tone deaf. Spiritually. Why is God going to punish Eli's children? We need to recap that. That's important. They're doing bad things. You're doing bad things. <coughs> For the sake of the children in the room, bad things. Uh, it was very sinful, detestable practices that were going on associated with the tabernacle or temple of God. Dude, you don't do that. Like, it's one thing. If you're a commoner and you're, you know, you're sinning and it's terrible... Uh, but this is a whole different deal, and it kind of gets at this thing about leaders. Leaders in the church, leaders of God. You're held to a higher standard, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And although Eli seems to be someone who has, you know, seems to think his heart is in the right place, and it probably is to some degree, he, he has done a horrible job raising his children. And his sons are now engaging in terrible practices associated with the tabernacle itself. Probably a good lesson for us today that if... If you're a leader in the church, you better, I mean, obviously the, the Bible is pretty clear in many of the Gospels that, uh, you know, to be a leader in the church, you have to have your own house in order. Yep. Well, here's a case example of why that is and the distractions and, and other problems that how do you expect to lead the people of God if, you know, you've got your sons running around doing what they were doing in the most holy of places. Yep. So like the part you can talk about is that they were like they had so much pride that they were like in, you know God hates when people are prideful it seems like uh, it's pretty clear you know over and over again but you know that they thought that they could take whatever meat they wanted from the sacrifices and you know God was very clear about this is the meat you could have because that's what you are allowed and then but they were like no we're you know God-like, we're the high priest, we can... And if you're, and if you're listening to this you and, and you're like, meat, who cares about meat? Well, the point is that there were some very specific laws written in the first five books of the Old Testament, which they knew, that said, here's the way that you live and conduct your life if you're a priest. And this, there were cases in which those were violated. So, which, while... Yeah. Which they also asked for. Yes. They demanded yes. that they get some guidelines to live by, and then... Give me some, tell me how to live, and then I'm like, that. Nah, never mind. <laughs> how, how many of us ask for advice, <laughs> and then when we hear what we don't want to hear, we're like, nah. Now, when you're that person, and you've been asked for your opinion, mm -hmm. and you give it, and, and the, the receiver is like, nah, how does that make you feel? <laughs> like, well, you asked my opinion. <laughs> don't ask again. That's it. It's like, well, fine, don't ask me again. <laughs> huh. Okay, okay, moving on. Uh, <clears throat> so let's talk about the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? Where God dwelled. Where God dwelled. Folks, this is, now if you're a Christian, this is weird. If, um, it, uh, really, to some degree, the, the, the great faiths of the world, Islam, Judaism and Christianity see this as a little odd because we understand that God or Yahweh now today 
doesn't dwell in a single place on the planet. Um, <clears throat> but if you're a Hindu, or you're maybe a Buddhist, or, or a Taoist, or a Shintoist, or something like that, this makes a little more sense to you. In antiquity, this made a lot of sense to a lot of people. Why? And it gets at this idea of people thought gods, plural, dwelled on earth from time to time. Now, they had their heavenly realm, and they had their earthly abodes. And, and in a lot of cases, the god would dwell wherever you did as long as you had an idol of that god. That idol represented the god. So people would make physical representations of the god out of clay or stone or metal or wood and keep that with them. And to them, they thought that god was there. That was, the, that was a representation of that god. So they would put that god on a pedestal in their home and pray to it. They would take it with them into battle. This was very common. And it also was common, the idea, especially in this late Bronze Age period, of regional gods. Gods that were associated specifically with a particular place on Earth. So there were, you know, the thinking that certain gods would live in your hometown. Your hometown might be a place where certain gods might dwell. Um, and if you go from one hometown to the next, that god didn't have as much power in that other place because it wasn't his abode, right? Um, if I were, you know, let's say I was in Beersheba, and I'm just making this up, let's say I was a Canaanite and I was in, this, in the town of Beersheba, and I decided to go to Jabus, well, there would be different gods in Jabus than Beersheba. And then let's say the, the Philistine cities of like Ashdod and, and uh, um, uh, Escalon and, and stuff like that, those would be different gods there, like Dagon. We'll talk about Dagon here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> the idea is that you don't have any power here. Your God doesn't have any power here because our gods are stronger. Okay, so think about that as, as you're thinking about this. Yahweh, who revealed himself, who we call Father God, uh, Jehovah, revealed himself to the Israelites and said, I am going to, first of all, I made the whole world. So the whole world is mine. There's no such thing as regionalism. There are no other gods. That's all baloney. I made the whole earth and the whole earth is mine. However, because I have chosen you, the Israelites, out of all the people of the earth, I have decided that I will come down and commune with you in a single place regularly that you are going to call the tabernacle or, or, or temple. Tabernacle is a tent. It was a mobile structure erected during the Exodus and kept during the entire period of the judges, which probably became a somewhat more permanent structure. It wasn't probably a tent tent uh, for very long. It was probably reinforced. At some point it had doors, we know that. So some physical structures were built. It represented the abode of God in heaven. This is an important one. The tabernacle re represented God's dwelling place in heaven on earth. And God would interface with the Israelites at the tabernacle, and that's where the high priest came in. He would, once a year, go into the Holy of Holies, this little inner sanctum, which only he was allowed to go into once a year, and commune with God on the Day of Atonement, okay? Where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. This is another important part for today. We just saw Raiders of the Lost Ark yesterday on the big screen. That was awesome. This is a whole different experience. And it's wonderful. And I, you know, and, and I'm sitting there, and poor Laura, you know, and they're like, Shishak invaded in 980 BC. And I'm like, no, no, it was 918. She has to listen to this, right? <laughs> so bless her heart. But they do really get a lot of it right. Uh, some of it they get wrong. <clears throat> but it's really wonderful to see that beautiful ark, which I feel, according to the, the Old Testament, <clears throat> comes close to looking like what probably I would imagine the ark would look like. And there it is on the big screen, gleaming in gold, and it fills the whole screen. It's beautiful. And that was essentially the footstool of God, folks, the most holy object in all of Judaism, created during the time of Moses and probably kept until, you know, we're not sure. We know that it's mentioned in, in I think, Second Chronicles as, as being um, present in uh, Judea up until probably the time of the Babylonian captivity. There's evidence that it probably was still there until then and probably Shishak. Probably Raiders of the Lost Ark is not true. Um, that Shishak probably did not take the Ark back with him. But we know almost certainly that it didn't exist after 586. It's never referred to again. Um, and there's no evidence that, that we have that it was there uh, after the exile. <clears throat> but long story short is this is the meeting place of God, the footstool of God. Now what did the Ark of the Covenant have in it? 
that was so important. Look on the the law, ten the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? The commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Horeb that he wrote with his own hands and etched into stone. And yes, we know that after that, additional commandments were given, but the first ten foundation of Judaic law were written down and put into the Ark of the Covenant. And then, of course, later we find that there was probably a couple of additional items, staff of Aaron, some manna in a jar. But the point is, this is a very, very important religious artifact for the Jews, most holy artifact they have. And, and of course, according to the Old Testament, God is very specific about how you treat the ark because he wants you to treat it with the same reverence you would treat him. But here's a really important point, folks, and this is what's lost on so many people. The ark was not a magical object. I'll say that again. Ark was not a magical object that anyone, like, according to Raiders of the Lost Ark, Hitler could just take and use and, you know, throw fire down on his enemies. It doesn't work like that. There are no magical objects in the world, folks. The only reason the Ark was special is because God said it was special. It was built by humans and maintained by humans. The only reason that certain events, powerful events, happened associated with the Ark is because God intervened. And he wanted humans to respect the ark as a model for respecting him. The ark itself, folks, had no power on its own. If we had the ark of the covenant sitting here, wouldn't that be kind of cool? Sitting in our room today. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't just pick up the ark and, and take it with me. And wherever I went, people would, you know, all my enemies would die and perish in flame um, and, and this and that. No. The point is, God decides when and how he acts in this world. It's just kind of like um, the Holy Spirit. You don't have, you can't control the Holy Spirit, folks. You have no power to say, I have this water, or I have this, this magic wand, and I can just wield it, right? In the name of the Holy Spirit, may fire come down upon you. It doesn't work like that. God is the source of all of the power of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So now, with that being said, we're going to <laughs> learn just how wrong the Israelites were themselves in thinking this was a magical object. And that the point of it is not that it is powerful, but that God is powerful and gives it power because he chooses. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I found it interesting in that chapter three there that, first of all, that Eli was eager to hear what God said. Why do you think he was eager? And knew that it was, you know, kind of going to come against him. Yeah. But but went ahead and said, but say it all, otherwise that's going to happen to you. And then, after that, it says that all of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed to be the prophet of the Lord. Somebody said, <coughs> somebody got the word out. Yeah. So it had to have been Eli yeah. that spread the word. So he was at least respected still. And I just kind of found that interesting because I'm sitting here with this, yeah. you know, I've condemned Eli for yep. his whatever <laughs> lack of parenting. <clears throat> Yet he was still respected and enough that everybody knew that when he said God spoke to Samuel and Samuel's mm-hmm. the guy, everybody said, okay. Not just respected, and we'll talk about that in a minute because <clears throat> he continues to sit at the gates of the city to, to provide um, counsel and people are still seeking it. But he continues to do the will of God. He, he accepts it. He accepts the fact that God is going to prune his family <laughs> because of what he's done. And yet, he doesn't throw it all away, does he? He doesn't throw it all away. He continues on. Boy, that's a, that's a convicting thing for me. When God has told me I'm wrong and he's going he's gonna to prune something, but I still say, you're right, God, you're right, I'm wrong. That's hard to do, isn't it? Can it reminds me of Hezekiah, though. Okay. Because, like... God says, no. hey, a whole bunch of bad stuff's going to no. happen, but I'm not going to have it happen in your lifetime no. because you followed this me. This is a good one. He goes away happy because he's like, well, I'm going to be all right. My son's probably going to go get carried off to Babylon, but at he least my lifetime give a rip. is fine. And who does he raise as a son? The most wicked king in all of Judean history, Manasseh. His son Manasseh is the most wicked king in history. It's funny how that works. So I kind of feel like that's kind of Eli's thing. Is like, well, it's not happening to me. My sons are going to die, which mm-hmm. sucks. But 
I'm good. <laughs> so There's I'm good. probably part of him that's sitting here thinking, these, these, you know, these sons of mine mm -hmm. who would never listen to me, mm -hmm. they're finally going to get theirs. Could I've be. been telling you guys, don't do this. <clears throat> now you're going to see why. I mean, I hate to say it, folks, but your kids are not robots. Anyone who has children knows they are not robots. Now, you, you are 50% responsible for their character and their upbringing. They are also responsible for it. You could do everything right, and they could choose the wrong path. I mean, that's just the truth of, of human nature. And anyone who says otherwise is dead wrong. You do everything you possibly can to raise your children to be God-fearing, Bible-knowing disciples of Jesus. But in the end, they have free will just like you did when you chose to follow Jesus. And maybe you weren't raised very well, or maybe you were raised great, and, and there's still issues. Um, but it happens. Go ahead, sweetheart. Sometimes things that you tell your kids when they're growing up comes back to haunt you when, you're, when they're grown. We had a birthday party, surprise birthday party for my daughter. And uh, I got a ride to the church building where the party was at. And I called her and I said, uh, can you come get me? She said, what are you doing there? I said, I've playing, been playing games game night. And uh, she said, okay. Well, then later she told me, she said, you know, I almost told you no because you always told us don't leave home until you, unless you know you got a way back. Okay, what else do you notice? In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. What? This is the Old Testament. I thought there was like visions all the time, dude. Pillars of fire. What's going on there? People have fallen away from God. Yeah. Which, I mean, same reason why God <coughs> wasn't speaking directly to you. Ah. I think there's a sense of, um, I might be going down a different road here a little bit, but when I... When I expect to see God move in my life, that's when I see it. If I'm just like, eh, whatever. I'm just on my own here. I'll just mm -hmm. handle things and do what I do. Mm -hmm. He kind of seems distant a little mm -hmm. bit. But when I anticipate it, when I have an expectancy of it, that I, God is going to show up for me, mm -hmm. he shows up for me. Okay. Mm Whether that's the... You know, the visions, they kind of turned their back on him mm -hmm. and didn't expect him to, mm -hmm. you know. Like what kind, maybe it kind of, kind of plays into what Steve is saying. I mean, the prophet has to be receptive <laughs> to hear the, the, the word that he's going to preach, right? In all of the books of, book of Judges, there are only two prophets named in the entire book, if you can believe that. Do you know who they were? One is a superstar judge. She held court in Bethel. Here's your clue. Deborah. Deborah is a prophet, a female prophet. And then we have another unnamed prophet. So in 400 years, there's only two people recorded in the Old Testament that were prophets of that era. That seems crazy to me. But I guess I kind of get it, right? The people constantly fell away. And remember, a prophet is, is the, the work of a prophet is what? What is the role of a prophet primarily? To speak God's word to the people. That's it. That's the number one reason. Speak God's word to the people. Whether it jives with what I want to hear or not. How many prophets from the Old Testament do you remember reading about would say something to the establishment or to the people and it was warmly received? Thank you, prophet, for telling us how wrong we were. How many times does that happen? <laughs> Love you. I do. Love you. That's great. No, it's not, it's not true that it's zero, but it's, it's not often, right? A lot of times people did repent. And what is God looking for? He's not looking to punish arbitrarily. Why is, why is God telling you something that you may not want to hear? You need to hear it. You need to hear it. And he's telling you a get chance. You, you need to change. And what did you yeah. say, Angela? Say, get you back on the right path. Get you back on the right <laughs> path. I'm like, he's giving you a chance. 
Like, God isn't just like giving you arbitrary rules and then yeah. enforcing them, you know, like, you know the rules, you've chosen to disobey mm -hmm. them, but then he still gives you a chance because he, like, to say, hey, I've noticed yep. that you're doing the wrong thing. A chance. So I'm gonna give you another, yeah, lots of chances. That's but, yes. the thing. How many chances did he give the people of well, Israel? I, I think this book would have been a little smaller if they would have listened. <laughs> it probably, bro, it would have been Genesis 1 and we would have been done. We've been out of here. There's your Bible study. Yeah. Adam and Eve did what they were told. The end. <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't do what they were told. And now we got this. And it hasn't changed, has it? It hasn't changed in all those years. It hasn't changed. But God, look, if God intended to create you only to destroy you, which some religions out there, that's kind of their tenant. You are just an annoyance to the creator or creators, and you're only here to service them, and for the you know, umpteenth time, they don't give a rip about you. And basically, you're, you're going to just be damned to eternal destruction anyway, or, or nothing. You'll be condemned to nothingness. Judeo-Christianity is completely different than that. It says there is a creator, one creator, who loves you and loves you so much, he is going to give you a million chances to change. A literally a million chances to change. He could just destroy you. Look, if God really, and again, to the point, let's say Adam and Eve didn't do the right thing. This Bible could also be one page long if God, every time that happened, just said, fine, I'm going to destroy you. The end. It's also one page long, right? The reason you have so much here is because God gives us a million chances to change. And he gives us his word. Folks, read the Bible. Read the Bible. It's all of the ways that God says, this is the way you can have a great life and have a great relationship with me and have an eternity with me in paradise. It's the guidebook. It's the cure for your disease. Look, if not to bring up a current event, if COVID, it was as easy as just reading and accepting that Jesus loves you and you would be cured of something called COVID, how many people do you think would want to do that? Well, there's probably a lot of people. Oh, I just have to accept that Jesus is my eternal savior and I will not die of COVID. Now, that's not true. Don't get me wrong there. I'm just saying, a terminal disease that is going to condemn you to death for all eternity, if all you have to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you would be cured of that? Sign me up, folks. Sign me up. And yet Jesus knows that. He would know. He said in there somewhere in the Bible that he knows men's hearts like they were filled up, and that's why they followed him. They, yeah. He said something to that effect. I can't remember how he put it. He wants them to learn. He don't want to, you know. I mean, he, yeah, he wants to fill them up, but mm -hmm. with food. But you know what I mean. He knew. He said something. Something about that. They they followed him. Uh, but of course, they didn't always follow. They didn't all follow him for that. But here's the thing: that he knows. Them. Yeah, Jesus says, "Well, you could cynically say, well, then people always reject him.' That's not true. A lot of people, it takes years to figure out that Jesus is who he says he is. How many people, the very first time they heard about Jesus, accepted it right away? It, I mean, it happens. It's not often. Sometimes it takes a long time. And, and how many people, once accepting Jesus and the gift that he has, are on the straight and narrow right away? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm still trying. God gives us a million chances. How awesome is that? And that's what this whole collection, anthology of books called the Bible is all about. It's a great illustration of why God created humankind. Okay. He didn't just want a large choir in heaven to sing praises. He wanted beings made in his image yep. to choose to follow him to have the faith and those that don't you know they're going to be cast aside forever but those who do those are the people that are going to you know, be with him and, and mm -hmm. that's where he, where I feel he gets where he gets his enjoyment is mm. you know people you know, taking a step of faith and why he keeps giving us so many chances because he wants that repentance and when you get that repentance then you've got You've got somebody. I love that, Steve. And, and you know, it makes me think, what, one definition of love is action, right? You can prove what's on the inside by your outward acts, right? So serving others, taking care of the poor, raising your children right, reading the Bible, those outward signs that on the inside, you love God, right? 
Well, it goes the other way too. If time, time spent is essentially one variable that you can use to measure what you think is love, right? How much patience is God having with us? How much work has God put into helping us? How much effort has he put in over thousands of years to keep us on the straight and narrow and to, and to and in the end, give what we call his only son as a living sacrifice for us? All of those suggest God loves us. He is not a distant deity that doesn't give a rib. The evidence suggests he loves us deeply and he's working really hard to help us. Okay. Let's move on. What time is it? Okay, let's go ahead and read chapter 4, 1b. <laughs> you know, look, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the original language of Hebrew, and even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, there were no chapters and verses. <laughs> um, some very smart people came along later, decided to add them so it's easier for us to reference things. And you're looking at this like, well, my NIV has four in a really weird place. <laughs> Look, you just got to get over it, okay? That's not the way the original was written. This is for our benefit, and sometimes it's not. So, chapter 4, let's read that whole thing. Let's go 1 to 22. Who can do that for me? I can. Thank you. At that time, the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines went to meet the Israelites in battle, and as the battle spread, they defeated the Israelites, killing about 4,000 soldiers on the battlefield. When some Israelite soldiers went back to their camp, the older leaders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord let the Philistines defeat us? Let's bring the Ark of the Agreement with the Lord here from Shiloh, and we'll take it with us into battle. Then God will save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the Ark of the Agreement with the Lord all-powerful, who sits between the gold creatures with wings. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark. When the ark of the agreement with the Lord came into the camp, all the Israelites gave a great shout of joy and made the ground shake. When the Philistines heard Israel's shout, they asked, What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? Then the Philistines found out about the ark of the Lord had come into the Hebrew camp. They were afraid and said, A God has come into the Hebrew camp. We are in trouble. This has never happened before. How terrible it will be for us. Who can save us from these powerful gods? They are the ones who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of disasters in the desert. Be brave, Philistines. Fight like men. In the past, they were our slaves. So fight like men or we will become their slaves. So the Philistines fought hard and defeated the Israelites, and every Israelite soldier ran away to his own home. It was a great defeat for Israel because 30,000 Israelite soldiers were killed. The Ark of God was taken by the Philistines, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battle. He tore his clothes and put dust on his head to show his great sadness. When he arrived in Shiloh, Eli was by the side of the road. He was sitting there in a chair, watching, because he was worried about the Ark of God. When the Benjamite entered Shiloh, he told the bad news. Then all the people in the town cried loudly. Eli heard the crying and asked, What's all this noise? The Benjamite ran to Eli and told him what had happened. Eli was now 98 years old, and he was blind. The Benjamite told him, I have come from the battle. I ran all the way here today. <clears throat> Eli asked, What happened, my son? The Benjamite answered, Israel ran away from the Philistines, and the Israelite army has lost many soldiers. Your two sons are both dead, and the Philistines have taken the Ark of God. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair. He fell beside the gate, broke his neck, and died because he was old and fat. He had led Israel for 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and was about to give birth. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been taken and that Eli, her father-in-law, and Phinehas, her husband, were both dead, she began to give birth to her child. The child was born, but the mother had much trouble in giving birth. As she was dying, the woman who helped her said, Don't worry, you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the baby Ichabod, saying, Israel's glory is gone. And she said this because the ark of God had been taken and her father-in-law and husband were dead. She said, Israel's glory is gone because the ark of God has been taken away. I'm, uh, <laughs> and this whole thing with Eli, it's just ridiculous. Um, it kind of reminds me of that, that, that movie from the 80s called Airplane. How many people have seen Airplane from the 1980s? 
Okay, <laughs> it's a comedy. It's probably a horrible example. Um, they're in flight, and, and all, the, all of a sudden the stewardess gets up and makes this very important announcement. She goes, I, I have some bad news. Um, <clears throat> we're off course. Um, we're running out of fuel. All of the pilots have been incapacitated. Oh, and we're running out of coffee. And only then <laughs> does everyone go, no, and they freak out, right? <laughs> Eli is told these horrible things. <laughs> but to his credit, what gets him so riled up that he freaks out? It's not his son's. It's not the, it's not the crushing defeat of his nation's army. What is it? the Ark of the Covenant being taken. You took the most important thing to God and to us. I'm guessing at that point it hit him that God is not with us. Yeah, I agree with that. I like that. And it's on him. Kinda, right? That's how I take it. I'm the leader. This is on my, this is my neck. He let him take it out of the tabernacle. (laughs) Like, dude. Touch the ark. Without Maybe God he didn't saying. let him. I mean, to be to be honest, it could be that he has lost so much power that he didn't really have much say in it, and that also is a negative, right? They must have followed the protocol, though, to get it there. Okay. They didn't drop dead. Yeah. Some Levites must have been carried. Well, that's just it. And then again, that gets at it's not a magical object. It's not like every time you touch it, you die. In certain cases, you might be killed or something would happen. I mean, obviously, the, the Philistines, as we'll come to find out, will take it all over um, Philistia, but they won't drop dead instantly from touching it. So it's not a magical object. It is something that God is going to show to humans needs to be revered. People of Shiloh, why are we not talking about Jerusalem here? <clears throat> We don't, we're not in control of uh, Jerusalem yet. I like how you said we aren't in control of Jerusalem. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, you're right. The Jews are not in control of Jerusalem, which is still called Jabus. Again, Canaan ruled by many different types of people with their own religions and practices. Jabus is not in their possession yet and won't be for a while. We're not really sure where Shiloh is, to be honest. Look, I know. We're living in an age where <clears throat> it seems like we know everything about history. We don't. To be honest with you, we know very little. The further back you go in history, the less secure you are in your knowledge. You know, it's it, you know, even in the first century, we're still really not sure who a lot of people were or where the places were and that sort of thing. Now you go all the way back. Shiloh, we're not really sure. We think it's north of Jerusalem. But we know it wasn't Jerusalem because the Israelites didn't have possession of it. So they <coughs> they put the ark in the tabernacle in Shiloh. It's mentioned in the book of Judges. At some point, the ark and the, and the tabernacle seem to have been taken to Bethel, which is where Deborah held her court under the palm trees of Bethel. Um, but we're not sure how long it was there. It may not have been there for very long, and at some point it comes back, because now in 1 Samuel, we find that it's back in Shiloh. So during that period of about 300 years, God's presence resides in Shiloh in the tabernacle. But the Ark is the Ark. <clears throat> it seems like the Ark of the Covenant at this point in time, too, may have uh, sort of turned Israel into you know, what their enemies were, idol yeah. worshippers. Yeah, that's it. You know, they, they expected this Ark to be the yeah. magic yeah. wand that <laughs> they got to carry out yep. in front of them. Where when it originally was used, it was the presence of God and the people carrying it knew it was the presence of God and knew it wasn't this good luck charm, but it just kind of evolved over hundreds of years, I guess, in their thinking. Think how how much people have changed in the West in the last 40 years. They're thinking of God and and righteousness and morality in just 40 years' time. So much has changed in, in the U.S. and Western Europe. We're talking 400 years doesn't take long folks for for truth to die it doesn't it doesn't take long for truth to be manipulated so much so that the philistines even were like oh no they've got the ark we're in trouble isn't that something yeah. isn't that something they yeah. had heard of it. yeah they upped their game they're like mm. okay now we're really against it so we better step up and it, it kind of makes me think about what's going on in the world today mm. the enemy of god is up in his game. Yep. Because it's not getting easier. That's it. 
it didn't even occur to them to like ask the Lord why they lost. They just thought, we'll just go get our Ark of the Covenant and then that's our ace. How many people died in the first skirmish? Okay. How many times is Samuel or God consulted in chapter four? Zero. Folks, God gives you a chance. He gives you many chances. He slaps you across the face and says, that's a warning shot. How many warning shots has God given you in your personal life? 4,000. That 4,000, that was a warning shot, folks. That was a warning shot to say, you got everything wrong. You need to repent. You need to admit you were wrong. You need to come back to truth, and I will make everything okay. But you got to come to me. you got to ask me for input. Well, they thought they were maybe too. Bring him to them. But, and that's where I think truth gets perverted, right? Because if you look at, and I, and I can see, you can see how they were thinking. Well, the ark in the past has been this magical thing, and we can use it to show the power of our God. But they also forgot that in the past, it was repentance that brought you back right, with righteousness. It was prayer to God. It was seeking counsel from righteous men or women. And none of that is apparent here. So while they seem to have pieces of it, they're missing a lot of the other picture. Like they're missing the point where <coughs> God said to Joshua, yeah. carry the ark in front of you as you march around the city of Jericho. Mm -hmm. You know, like God, it was God directed. And they yeah. just remember the part where, oh, well, the ark went in front of us. And that's yeah. the part they remember. That's or like when we crossed the Jordan River, the ark went in front of us and the river parted. Yeah. They just don't remember that God said, Ooh, this go is really good. into the river this way, you know? In the, in the spiritual realm, God <coughs> does it always the same. But in the physical realm, he changes it every right. single time. As we look back through all, I mean, even Jesus, when he was healing people, every single time it was a different physical way that he was healing. He didn't spit in, in dirt and rub it in every man's eyes to right. heal the blind. Right. He changed it up. Right. God changed up the physical way yes. things happen yes. to keep... That's it. Our eyes on the spiritual side. That's it. How many times, you know, I like to say partial knowledge is sometimes far more dangerous than complete ignorance. <clears throat> um, knowing half the truth can sometimes twist things so, so badly you should have never have known it in the first place, right? Um, look back, look, we are still in the area of the judges. What happened to Gideon? This is another perfect, look, you could replace Eli with Gideon here to some degree. Gideon calls out to God for help. He, he seeks God's counsel, and God says, I will give your enemies into your hands, and you just have to follow the following guidelines. And he does that, and he wins. God gives him victory over his enemies. But what happens that becomes the real problem for Gideon after that, that victory? He has to be proved. Say it again? He has to be proved, have it proved to him. Mm, that's after that. So after he has it proved, and, and to his credit, you know, he's, he tested God and God responded patiently, but he gives Gideon victory over his enemies. The problem is Gideon doesn't stop there. Gideon then decides he's going to go on and he is going to destroy his enemies out of vengeance. And he never sought God's counsel for that. He went on not asking God what to do, not seeking his, his input or his, his approval to even continue on, to continue to pursue his, his enemy, and brought upon himself great disaster for his people. Folks, it's amazing. They literally just lived through that, and now they're doing it again. <laughs> you didn't seek God's counsel. You've, you've gotten a bloody nose. Man, you should ask God what to do now. But no, they don't. And then what is the repercussions? How many people die after the second battle, 30,000. This is almost a tenfold, well, yeah, four, eight, 12, 16, 20, so it's like five, six times as much, right? 7.5. Thank you. <laughs> it's early. I got you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that, brother. Of magnitude, a huge increase. God gives you bloody noses or, or smacks or, or scratches to let you know, rip, 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 get back on track, get back on track. You're not going the right way. You can choose to continue to ignore that, and what's going to happen? God may not be the one who punishes you. Your own actions might get you into plenty of trouble on your own. And I tell people, look, you can blame Satan. <laughs> you can blame God. You can blame anyone. Your own actions can get you in a lot of trouble. Well, we think we're doing God a favor by just kind of taking it. I'll just take it into my own hands here. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to bug you with that's, this. That's exactly this. 
I got this. Yeah. I got this. God's like, no, you don't. I mean, the serpent said, oh, you know, well, he knows if you eat the fruit, you'll be just like him. Yeah. Oh, well, I got this then. A twisting of truth. Look, gosh, this is how it works. The worst sin of all is twisting truth and righteousness. It's not a blatant lie. It's easy to lie to someone completely blatantly and they'll never believe you. But if you twist truth and turn truth and take pieces of truth, it's so much easier to corrupt and destroy. The ark is taken. Now, if you are an Israelite and you have just heard that your ark has now been taken, what are you going to think? What are you gonna think? It's over, bro. It's over. It's over. But thankfully, they have Samuel to speak some truth to them. And look at this. <laughs> yeah. You know, even uh, Phineas's <coughs> wife has this son, and she's like, she's dying in childbirth. Their last dying act is to name her son, you know, Ichabod. Ichabod. <laughs> no glory. <clears throat> or where is the glory? Where is the glory? The glory of God has departed from Israel. Now, sometimes it takes a real serious incident to kind of get people back on track. It is thought that Shiloh is destroyed completely soon after this because it is not mentioned again. And I believe it's first or second Kings. No, it's Jeremiah in which Jeremiah reveals that long in the past, Shiloh had been destroyed. And, and by the time of Jeremiah, it's utter ruins. So here you have a people who have completely abandoned God. They have lost their holy city, right? I mean, this is kind of on par with Jerusalem being destroyed hundreds of years later. The great object of veneration, the ark is taken. Um, who knows what happened to the tabernacle? It's, it's possible that it was destroyed. It's also possible that they kind of got their crap together and got it out of there before the Philistines showed up. This is a real dark time. Um, what else do I want to talk about? I find about? it interesting yeah. she said that she called the boy Ichabod because the glory of God has departed from Israel, mm -hmm. but also because of her father-in-law and husband. So... I don't know if that refers to, in her mind, like all the great people are gone. Mm -hmm. like every, you know, not only God's mm -hmm. gone, but my status yeah. in life. And, I mean, there was some sense yep. of she had it made, right? Because she was right. part of that family. Right. And that's over. That's over now. All right. Any final thoughts? I hate leaving on a dark point. Um, next week, it's, it's a heist story. It's, it's funny. I mean, you have to admit that, that uh, the Ark's uh, sojourn through Philistia is, is kind of a comical one, really. Um, so join us for that. Um, but I think we're getting at this point, which is we're, we're finally reaching the bottom. And I think we're really reaching the bottom. If you read Judges, and you read over and over again the accounts of the people turning away from God, horrible things happen to them. They repent. They get back they get back in the right path and God saves them from their enemies. I think you've seen here now, we've reached the absolute bottom that we can reach. There really is nowhere further to go here. And probably this is the breaking point at which pretty, pretty much everyone in society said, we gotta do something different because things are not right. Things are completely broken. Now, how bad is it you have to get to that point, <laughs> right? 400 and some years, four, over 400 years are spent with God giving us, the people of Israel, chances to repent, to, to get back on track. Folks, there's nowhere to go but down. You keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Eventually there is a bottom. You don't want to reach it. <laughs> the Hebrews, the Israelites have reached it. And so you will see now a complete restructuring of the Israelite nation. It will be completely restructured. Philosophically, spiritually, um, uh, geographically will be restructured and of course culturally um, they will finally say we've had enough we need a king this isn't working anymore we need a strong central government that can rule and can put everything back together and as we'll see through the books of first and second Samuel that is a spectacular success that is a spectacular success the people get their act together God gives them what they ask for and the period of the United Monarchy 
First Saul will be anointed, and we'll get to that. Then King uh, David will be anointed, both by Samuel, the last judge of Israel. This will be the most successful and prosperous time in the history of Israel. Okay, so join us next week for more. Thank you. Thank you.